I don't think it's a coincidence that Colin Kaepernick's story and this story have a sort of a synergistic relationship. It shows Trump representing the historical white supremacy of the U.S. facing off between internal and externally colonized people. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Green News Report, Counterspin, Ring of Fire Radio, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, The Bradcast, and The Majority Report. We begin today in Puerto Rico, where six days after Hurricane Maria slammed into the island, more than three and a half million U.S. citizens remain without adequate food, water and fuel. The Category 4 storm brought record rainfall and catastrophic flooding, destroying power lines, left the entire island in the dark. Authorities warn some areas could be without electricity for six months. At least 13 people have died so far. At least that's what's known. Many parts of the island are cut off. San Juan Mayor Carmen Yulín Cruz said, quote, What we're now seeing is that the aftermath is almost more horrific than the actual passing of the hurricane itself, unquote. Puerto Rico's governor, Ricardo Rosselló, has asked for more government aid to avert a humanitarian catastrophe, especially in the area, uh, in the interior, and areas not reached by relief efforts. This is a resident and mayor of Toa Baja, a city on the northern part of the island. We don't have communications. I have no telephone. We have nothing. We do not have supplies. In my house, we do not have water. There is no gas. The lines are long. We are in the process of getting up, recovering. These days, we have been organizing our resources to be able to reach the street and start to bring the oasis, the water that people need so much. As the crisis in Puerto Rico became clear over the weekend, President Donald Trump failed to weigh in, instead lashing out at athletes who've joined a growing protest movement started by former 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick against racial injustice. It took President Trump five full days to respond on Twitter with comments that drew criticism for what some called lack of empathy, blaming the island itself. In a series of tweets, Trump appeared to blame Puerto Rico, writing, Puerto Rico, which was already suffering from broken infrastructure and massive debt, is in deep trouble. Its old electrical grid, which was in terrible shape, was devastated. Much of the island was destroyed with billions of dollars owed to Wall Street and the banks, which sadly must be dealt with. Food, water and medical are top priorities and doing well. That was the tweet. This comes as Trump has yet to visit Puerto Rico even after he visited Texas and Florida after Hurricane Harvey and Irma. Both states voted for him. This comes as hospitals that were flooded are depending on diesel generators to keep patients alive. Meanwhile, 70,000 people have been ordered to evacuate the areas around the Guajataca Dam, which was damaged by Hurricane Maria and is at risk of collapsing at any minute. 
For more, we're joined by Yarimar Bonilla, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Caribbean Studies at Rutgers University, a visiting scholar at the Russell Sage Foundation. She just wrote a piece in The Washington Post headlined, Why Would Anyone in Puerto Rico Want a Hurricane? Because Someone Will Get Rich, she wrote. She's also one of the founders of the Puerto Rico Syllabus. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with you. Uh, Thank you. Have Thank you with you. us, Professor. The poverty in Puerto Rico. Can you talk about what is part and parcel? You really have several hurricanes here. I mean, not just the hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico, but the hurricane of devastation. You write, why would anyone in Puerto Rico um, uh, want a hurricane? Because someone will get rich. Well, and, and as I said in that piece, Puerto Rico was already in a state of emergency before the hurricane hit, already double the poverty rate of the poorest state in the United States. Forty-five percent of the population is in, in extreme economic risk. And these are folks who live paycheck to paycheck. I mean, there's—people like to talk about the huge amount of folks on government assistance. But in addition to that, you also have a huge class of working poor who live in gig economy, who live in paycheck to paycheck, and they have not—a lot of them have not worked since early. Irma. They've not received a paycheck. So a lot of people are really frustrated because you can't get money out of ATMs right now in Puerto Rico. And that's certainly a concern for huge amounts of people. But there's people who have no money to withdraw because they have not received any income since Irma. And so right now, when all, all that is available is a scarce amount of food and water that you can purchase only in cash, um, there, there's a lot of people who are simply going hungry and going thirsty. Can you explain, Professor, what the Jones Act is? The Jones Act limits the kind of trade that Puerto Rico can have because it can only arrive on U.S. ships. And so not only does it limit the ships that arrive, which is critical right now, it also makes the cost of everything that arrives much higher. And so it, it makes basic necessities in this time, like batteries and generators, it makes them prohibitive. So this is interesting. I mean, in the case of um, uh, the hurricanes that hit Texas, for example, the EPA was busy rolling back all environmental, many environmental protections, saying we don't want these regulations right now. But when it comes to Puerto Rico, have they rolled back the Jones Act? No, they, they specifically have said that they will not, that they don't think it's necessary, that they think the U.S. is doing all it can. And I really don't don't understand that at all. When you have the, the instance of the hurt of the earthquake in Haiti, there was a floating hospital that was brought to, to the shores of Haiti where people were taken to to get medical attention. Nothing of that sort is happening in Puerto Rico. We need fresh water. There's no water being brought to the island. There are not water reserves. 80, you know, a lot of, there's been a lot of talk about the electricity, but 80% of the population also don't have running water or available drinking water. You write, Professor Bonilla, in your piece, one peculiarity of this year's hurricane season is that many of the societies that have been hit are not sovereign nations, but rather places with diverse and shifting arrangements with their colonial uh, centers. And of course, you talk about St. Martin, you talk about uh, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico that doesn't, isn't able to choose the president of the United States, but is, um, a part of the United States. Yeah. You know, there used to be a saying that Puerto Rico had the best of both worlds in its relationship, but I think increasingly people have come to realize that it has the worst of both worlds. Because on the one hand, it's, it shares the same kind of environmental vulnerability to these kind of storms that the Caribbean nations face. Um, but at the same time, it is not able to rally with its neighbors. And in addition to the environmental vulnerability, 
vulnerability. It has economic vulnerability, as we discussed with these high rates of unemployment. It has infrastructural vulnerability because in its in its uh, current economic crisis, it has not been able to attend to its power grid, to its water supply for over a decade. And it also has great political vulnerability because it has no representation in Congress. Puerto Ricans on the island are nobody's constituents. Nobody is watching out for them. You have people like Luis Gutierrez and Nidia Velasquez who respond in part and partly because they have a great number of Puerto Rican constituents in their home states. And they are Puerto Rican. Yeah, but Puerto Ricans have no, no one in Congress being able to leverage votes, to, to, to partner, to rally, to strategize with the other, you know, members that are there. As Puerto Rico faces six months before its power grid is restored, Ricardo Ramos, the director of the government-owned Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, told CNN people would need to change the way they cool off. He said, quote, it's a good time for dads to buy a ball and a glove and change the way you entertain your children. Professor Bonilla. It's offensive. It's completely offensive, because this is not a matter of, of watching iPads and playing Nintendo. This is a matter of people needing to have their insulin chilled, people needing to have their asthma, uh, you know, respirator therapy, you know, attended to. It's, it's a dire medical, critical human rights crisis. And, and so to say that, that, to pretend that this is about people wanting to just entertain themselves and entertain their kids, I can't imagine anything more offensive than that. And, of course, um, there is Donald Trump's quote. And if you could respond to what he said about Puerto Rico having to deal with their crumbling infrastructure and their debt, what they owe to banks— to me, this was clearly a message to Wall Street. This was saying, don't worry, we're not going to forgive the debt. We're not going to, you know, we're going to take care of you. That's that's who Donald Trump is assuring. The debt will continue to be serviced. And I don't know at what expense. Where does the PROMESA Act fit into this, the PROMESA bill? Well, and, and this is part of what I wrote about in, in, in the Washington Post pill. The, the PROMESA Act already paved the way for privatization of all of Puerto Rico's public services. And, and the Donald Trump has tweeted and also the, the oversight board in Puerto Rico had already tweeted also or, or, or communicated, um, that they were going to expedite any, any kind of projects that, that, that would help raise Puerto Rico at this time. But those will probably be the privatization of public services at incredibly low rates or possibly even giving away these private services for other for these public services for private companies to manage. They're, they'll probably promise that they'll make some repairs and and make some improvements. And, and then Puerto Rico will completely lose all of its services, not to talk about the huge displacement of population and the kind of gentrification that we can expect to happen just as it happened in New Orleans. President Trump hasn't been to Puerto Rico. No, no. People are saying this is Trump's Katrina, but it's 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 Katrina times 100 because it's Katrina in every town in Puerto Rico that is completely abandoned right now.
Okay, Desi Doyen, I know Donald Trump is doing a fantastic job down in Puerto Rico. He's told me so himself over and over again. But what's the real story now more than a week after Hurricane Maria? Well, unfortunately, Puerto Ricans are still waiting for aid to reach them. A week, as you said, after Hurricane Maria devastated the U.S. island territory, the logistical difficulty of distributing emergency aid cannot be overstated when so much of Puerto Rico's roads, bridges, ports, and communications were completely destroyed. San Juan Mayor Carmen Yulin Cruz on MSNBC echoed other Puerto Rican officials who expressed gratitude for federal aid but said that the scale of the disaster is so mind-bogglingly enormous that much more is needed. We need diesel, we need gas, we need running water, we need some sort of way for people to find their way around, and we need our our hospitals not to become death traps. So this is a big SOS for anybody out there. The Defense Department says that only 44 percent of the island's residents have access to potable drinking water. That's one and a half million people, and that out of 69 hospitals, only 11 have fuel for electricity. The lack of fuel has already caused the deaths of at least two patients in an intensive care unit. Senior citizens are trapped in high-rise buildings in the oppressive heat without food, water, or medicine. President Trump Trump is set to visit Puerto Rico on Tuesday after being roundly criticized for tweets suggesting that Puerto Rico is somehow to blame for Hurricane Maria's catastrophic destruction. And let's underscore this. The power is going to be out, as officials estimate, for six months in Puerto Rico. I mean, we've said over and over again this is a humanitarian crisis, but I don't think people understand the scale of the disaster and potential catastrophe that we're now looking at. The Trump administration does appear to be ramping up its emergency response, deploying more U.S. military assets, including the U.S. Navy hospital ship The Comfort and the 101st Airborne Division. But those will take several days to arrive. Yeah, well, take your time. That medical ship Comfort had been sitting there in dock at the U.S. mainland for days before it was uh, even shipped out. And it's going to take days before it even gets to the island. On Thursday, more than a week after the storm and after much criticism from both Republicans and Democrats, the Trump administration finally waived the Jones Act to speed up fuel deliveries. That's a century-old law limiting shipping between U.S. ports to only U.S. flagged vessels, which also happens to increase costs. The administration waived the Jones Act in Texas and Florida after Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. Trump had told a press gaggle on Wednesday, quote, there's a lot of people who work in the shipping industry that don't want the Jones Act lifted. But they didn't mind lifting it for Texas and Florida, just not for the three and a half million citizens in Puerto Rico. Got it. In response, the former head of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance said Trump's reasoning, quote, almost sounds like profiteering by U.S. shipping companies off an emergency like this. Well, what good are natural disasters if someone can't profiteer off them? And by the way, federal aid is also slow to reach the U.S. Virgin Islands, which were also devastated by Hurricanes Irma and Maria and are also in dire need. The similarities to the Bush administration's botched response to Hurricane Katrina are striking, although this is on a much broader scale. Despite the humanitarian disaster in Puerto Rico, Trump and congressional Republicans on Wednesday focused on their proposals to enact massive tax cuts.
The New York Times may have meant well with their September 24th editorial headlined, Puerto Rico is American. We can't ignore it now, which called on all Americans to rally behind their fellow citizens as Puerto Rico faces staggering devastation after Hurricanes Maria and Irma. But there's something hollow about underscoring the Americanness of people who do not, in fact, have the same rights of U.S. citizenship. And in describing the factors that make the disaster much worse and harder to address, namely Puerto Rico's crushing debt and stifled economy, as persistent agonies, as though they were endemic conditions which we can only look upon and lament. With thousands of people lacking water, electricity, fuel, food, and homes, the hurricanes created one sort of crisis in Puerto Rico, but they've brought another into stark relief. What possible ways forward are there that could address both? Ed Morales is a freelance journalist and poet. He teaches at the Center for Ethnicity and Race at Columbia University and is co-director of the documentary film Who's Barrio? about gentrification in East Harlem. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Ed Morales. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about what's happening now and the U.S. government's response. We understand that Trump has approved a 10-day waiver of the Jones Act, which prohibited ships not made, owned, and crewed by U.S. citizens from delivering goods to the island. So it prevented Puerto Rico's neighbors from bringing aid from day one. Waiving the Jones Act sounds good for the short term, but I can't see how that's sufficient what do you make of the Trump administration's response so far? Well, yeah, definitely uh, sluggish. I mean, as is most things that happen with Trump. And, you know, it's hard to tell whether it's um, negligence or purposeful. But um, even just incompetence seems to work for the Trump administration. You know, as, as we've seen, it's almost part of the plan governing by chaos and incompetence. The thing with the Jones Act um, and the fact that he suspended it temporarily. It was probably more because he's concerned, you know, with his image in the media and it was a bad look. But yes, despite the fact that that's now suspended, I mean, the big problem that seems to be prominent now, and it was just reported on CNN and a lot of other places, is there's a lot of containers of supplies that are actually at the port, which weren't prevented by the Jones Act. And for varying reasons, like lack of fuel uh, for the trucks to get them out to uh, the countryside, and also lack of drivers who may be homeless or incommunicado to actually do the driving of the trucks. Well, a number of media have been kind of riffing on how a lot of Americans don't even know Puerto Rico is part of the U.S., you know, snicker, snicker. But it isn't really that simple. I mean, the Jones Act, which doesn't apply to the U.S. Virgin Islands, for example, is just one of the ways that Puerto Rico exists in a strange relationship to mainland U.S. How is that relationship in Puerto Rico's status impacting the, the situation now? I actually have had uh, trouble with myself insisting on uh, a huge program of redevelopment sponsored by the U.S. government and actually feeling like it's necessary for at least some military to show up to 
help restore infrastructure because I eventually want the goal of independence and I, I don't want to rely on the U.S. However, it's such an incredibly catastrophic situation that, you know, supporting this kind of help, you know, is absolutely necessary to save people's lives. And I would prefer to see it as a as sort of a down payment for <laughs> reparations in the future regarding the colonial status of, of Puerto Rico. But, you know, Puerto Ricans have always had second-class citizenship, as you know. You know, Puerto Ricans on the island can't vote for president, don't have representation in Congress. And I think it's analogous to the second-class citizenship that African-Americans and Native Americans have, the internally colonized have in the United States. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Colin Kaepernick's story and this story have a sort of a synergistic relationship. It sort of it shows Trump representing the historical white supremacy of the U.S. facing off uh, between internal and externally colonized people who are second-class citizens. Pretty much every story about the hurricane mentions the debt. Puerto Rico has some $68 million in debt. When you hear debt crisis, it implies people were living high on the hog and spending beyond their means. And now, as Trump would say, sadly, it's time to pay the piper. What should we know about the debt and the measures taken to address it? The PROMESA Act passed in a bipartisan way by including some of the more liberal Democratic senators last year. You know, I'm surprised that people last year were not uh, saying that, well, we're American citizens. Why? How, how can they do this to us? Because they're essentially taking away Puerto Ricans' right to autonomous government on the island. And the same way that Puerto Ricans have a non-voting representative in Congress called the resident commissioner. It's now Jennifer Gonzalez from the Statehood Party. On the PROMESA board itself, the governor has a non-voting representative. So even the governor of Puerto Rico just cannot vote in issues that come up before PROMESA, and then PROMESA has to approve all budgetary matters. That in itself was an abysmal situation, but I think that's what, I don't want to say it's interesting because it's an incredible human tragedy what's going on in Puerto Rico. But the fact that there's such widespread devastation, I mean, first of all, it puts their budgetary plans in absolute uncertainty. The revenues that were supposed to be generated by even the you know failing economy that was happening there, I mean, are just how can you project them? We're going to have uh, really an exodus of a lot of people. Uh, their businesses are not working. There's a problem with uh, people receiving Social Security uh, and entitlement checks you know, that's coming up soon because banks are not working. So it's hard to imagine that there's any way that the plans about repaying the debt really can move forward at this point. I mean, there has to be a huge rebuilding of the island before, you know, we can even get back to what Promesso was thinking about. I did want to underscore your point about the anti-democratic nature of the financial oversight board that PROMESA put in place. These were economic decisions that are being made over the heads of people without their participation, and yet it's certainly the people who are suffering under them. But going forward, in a Washington Post op-ed, uh, Rutgers professor Yari Marbonilla recounted a conversation she had had with a wealth manager in Puerto Rico who was upbeat about the island's economy. Investments were doing well after Trump's election, and this person said, Quote, the only thing we need now is a hurricane, close quote. It chills the heart to hear that some people see humanitarian disasters as an opportunity for gain. But of course, they do. Is, is that what we possibly are looking at now with Puerto Rico, this disaster capitalism? Years ago, Naomi Klein you know, related that to what happened in Louisiana with Katrina and the remark by 
that person to Yarimar, indicative of probably experiences of Home Depot actually having profited from other natural disasters. Yeah, so the idea is that some people will see this as almost as they did with New Orleans, like, oh, now we have a clean slate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and we can uh, push through a lot of things, including privatization. Yeah. The thing with New Orleans is that, and even with all of the recent uh, hurricane disasters in the United States, you have these regions that are affected that, you know, are seriously affected, and there's a considerable area involved. But there are neighboring areas that, you know, can sort of absorb some of the population or send help easily on trucks. And and the thing about Puerto Rico is that it's an incredible uh, scale of devastation that resembles what happened with Barbuda under Irma and other smaller islands where almost the entire island is devastated. So no help or there's no stability in any region on the island that can help support recovery efforts. For instance, Sandy, you know, knocked out a few places in the southern shores of New York City, but the rest of New York City went on, and then the tri-state area was able to help the victims of Sandy. And it's not the case uh, in Puerto Rico, as it, as it is in, in, in some of those smaller Caribbean islands that were also devastated. Right. Well, I'm, I'm also reading, again, talking about the debt, that there's concern that um, the oversight board may sort of channel funds toward recovery efforts that, that allow bondholders to be paid back, that that will be the priority or that they will prioritize service to the tourist sector, you know, um, at the expense of the rest of, of Puerto Rico. Is it your sense or concern that this debt servicing that seems to be put forward, that that will impact the way recovery happens? Yeah, I hadn't heard that, but I'm I'm not surprised at all, and that would be uh, logical because you know they would um, justify it on the grounds that the tourist sector is one of the last remaining viable industries that could be up and running. In fact, you know, I've heard reports that some of the hotels are functioning somewhat normally, and you know, you don't have to go into the countryside and you can just sit there uh, on the beach and still go swimming. So that's the, the problem. You know, there's many problems. These natural disasters uh, reveal the difference in social classes and the way poor people usually are devastated the worst. And that uh, recovery efforts have, you know, continually driven to favor the private sector or money classes. Well, you might not always see it clearly through media coverage, but there are other possible ways forward. Um, let's talk about, as you do in your in your nation piece, let's talk about if we were to apply, I would say, humanistic principles instead of this ideology of private gain. What could happen if we could exert the will? What could happen going forward in Puerto Rico? Well, you know, when I first wrote the bit about what uh, Roosevelt did, Franklin Roosevelt for the nation, you know, in fact, there are these main streets in San Juan that are named after Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt as a result of those efforts. It felt like, wow, you know, this is so anachronistic to be writing this. I mean, nobody really believes in this, you know, government uh, providing this massive Keynesian infusion to infrastructure and creating jobs for people without worrying about the private sector. But, you know, I kind of wanted to leave it in because I wanted to maybe point out how maybe even a lot of our leaders, maybe on the moderate left or the Democratic end of the spectrum, are not even suggesting things like this, and would probably feel powerless bringing stuff like this up in 
Congress when it's exactly what is needed. We have a problem in this country about how we've devalued that era of American history. It's really funny how some of these uh, Make America Great Again people, you know, will, what, what was the greatest era, of, at least in the 20th century in American history, was the era of fighting, recovering from the Depression and fighting in the, in the Great War that had the moral cause, World War II. And what was happening during that era? There was high taxation of wealthy people, and there were huge government investment programs, and that's what created the middle class. But, uh, you know, there are so many people who don't remember those things, and that is what's needed. And I put it out there, and <laughs> I hope someone takes it seriously, but uh, frankly, I felt like I was, you know, on the fringe saying something like that. Well, I actually have seen a few little glimpses here and there, even in the press. Um, a columnist, Jeff Spross at The Week, had a column in which he said, you know, just spend the money necessary to repair Puerto Rico society. And he talked about the government just paying off the, the debt. You know, $70 billion, he points out, would increase federal spending by 1.8% for one year. Mm-hmm. And that's what it should have happened instead of Promesa. But you didn't see any uh, strong Democratic uh, Party besides uh, Bernie Sanders supporting that idea. Yeah, and, and Yari Marbonia says in that Washington Post piece that part of the reason that Promesa was such a non-solution and so short-sighted was fear in Washington that the legislation would be viewed as a federal bailout. Right, yeah, that's it. And, you know, then you even had Puerto Ricans saying, we don't want a bailout. You know, as if there was something morally wrong with it. Right. The disconnect also in terms of just money and what it actually means. And I do fault media on, to some extent for not making these things clear because you know that people would say, oh, we can't afford this investment in Puerto Rico. We can't afford it, you know. And these will be many of them the same people who had nothing to say when the Senate voted to increase military spending by $81 billion to $700 billion. Just the increase is more than the entirety of Puerto Rico's debt. Yeah. So it's not really about money. If you're hiring, then you know that finding great talent can be tough, and there are so many places where you could post your job openings in the hopes of finding the best candidates, it's hard to know where to start. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within just 24 hours. And there's no juggling of emails or calls to your office. You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free 
free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash best of the left. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash best of the left. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash best of the left. So, Heather, in the last segment, we were talking about the incredible lack of urgency that we have seen around what was happening in Puerto Rico this week. And it's only going to get worse. And and I think I, I would hope that as we are now, you know, a week plus out uh, or so from the storm, that at the very least, we'll be able to get news crews in there that will hopefully communicate just how dire the situation is on this island. And it has been very odd, to say the least, to observe just how disinterested Donald Trump seems to be in what's going on in Puerto Rico. You mentioned his series of tweets, which spent as much time talking about uh, Puerto Rico has to repay its debt and uh, they have a bad infrastructure than it was like the the horror of what's happened there. I mean, 80 percent at a minimum of the agricultural business industry, I mean, sector in Puerto Rico has been completely wiped out. And uh, when you contemplate where they get uh, a lot of their food, those islands had been wiped out weeks before, uh, or I should say a week or two before. Uh, we had refugees on Puerto Rico from these other uh, islands, including uh, the American Virgin Islands, but also other islands that were devastated by the hurricanes in this season. And you mentioned earlier that uh, Donald Trump was late in sending the uh, the, me- the 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 massive medical ship that we have. Um, there seems to be now uh, we're hearing that supposedly the administration is preventing uh, lawmakers from heading down to Puerto Rico and U.S. Virgin Islands. This is according to uh, aides of these congressional lawmakers, which I imagine on some level is a function of Donald Trump wants to be the first person to go there from Washington to I don't want other people basically uh, who have access to the media explaining what's going on there. I mean, this is really stunning, and I can't help but think that a the reason why the american public is not as keyed into it is because of at the very least uh, a certain amount of i don't know co- colonial perspective on puerto rico puerto rico is an afterthought and and then i would uh, layer in another level of of racism and then i would say with donald trump it's probably rather similar uh, racism might go to the fore but also Puerto Rico doesn't vote in presidential elections. They gave 70 percent of their uh, their Republican caucus vote to Marco Rubio. And I think he just thinks I get nothing out of them anyways. Well, I, you know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think that's absolutely correct. It's obvious to me that, you know, I mean, first of all, I mean, polling says that almost half of Americans don't know that Puerto Ricans are Americans, uh, that they, they have U.S. citizenship. And. 
So, uh, you know, I, I haven't even been sure that Donald Trump knew that, to be honest. I mean, I, I guess he, he must, but he hasn't said anything like that. He hasn't used the words, you know, our fellow Americans or, you know, we've got U.S. citizens. He's never said that. So, you know, for all I know, he he doesn't know that. And I think it's fairly clear that if he does know it, he's not real sure that's the way it ought to be. Because one of his, you know, the tenets of his immigration policy and refugee policy, as it's coming out, is that he demands that people speak English. Well, a lot of Puerto Ricans don't. They're Americans who do not speak English. And I can totally imagine that he uh, finds that uh, unacceptable. And he has a long history. I mean, he did say the other day that he was in, you know, that he, coming from New York, he had dealt with a lot of Puerto Ricans and he knew Puerto Ricans, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he also has a history of denying housing to Puerto Ricans right. and being sued by the federal government for, for discrimination on that basis, that African-Americans as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that may be his only real experience is denying them housing. So this, you know, this, this whole attitude, I mean, it just, I don't think there's any doubt that the ethnic makeup of Puerto Rico uh, plays into this, this lack of interest in what is going on uh, uh, it, down there it, at a time of a major, major disaster. I mean, this is really bad, and uh, there is, <laughs> the repercussions are going to be um, enormous, and, and I just, I, I can't, you know, I, I, I sort of, you know, kiddingly, you know, in a very dark way was kind of tweeting last week about, you know, can we send Harry Connick Jr. down there so that maybe, you know, somehow or another we'll start to see this as the major disaster it was. He, you'll recall, was the one who went into the Superdome uh, after Katrina in the dark, and uh, suddenly people were going, oh, my God, what is going on there? It took right. that. So, you know, this is, I, I don't, uh, I don't, and I guess he's going to get away with it. I mean, this is what astonishes me. I, I just can't get over the fact that the president of the United States uh, is able to do this. I mean, he is breaking every rule, every rule. I mean, what, what, what do you think there is just a certain amount of, of, of fatigue uh, that is involved with with Donald Trump? Is there some type of have people basically just said like, OK, this is. Uh, this is it. I mean, we're, we, we don't have, you know, uh, going forward, we're just going to be, you know, we can't have any expectations of Donald Trump. And, and I mean, I mean, on some level, it's like a, uh, it, it's almost as if, you know, the, the, the country is reacting to a pathogen that they cannot, uh, get rid of. Uh, <laughs> and it's just sort of like building defense mechanisms. But I mean, you just don't get the sense. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I keep returning to this notion of just, you know, we talk about white supremacy uh, and you talk about the idea of 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 where from whence the the notion of Black Lives Matter uh, comes from, that they're simply amongst the levers of power and communications within uh, this country dominated by white people. There is just not the same level of concern for people's lives, which are no, who are not white. And I, 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 you know, it's it's hard not to come to that conclusion with what we're seeing.
you know, Hurricane Maria slammed into Puerto Rico, devastating the whole island, right? You, you know that. You know that. Because the corporate media, that's what they do. They do a good job of covering disaster porn. They, that, that, they are on it. They are in there. Disaster porn 24-7. They love it. Adjectives don't do justice to what Hurricane Maria did to Puerto Rico or to what is happening right now to more than three million people who live there. But a few accurate ones are apocalyptic and devastating. That is true. Puerto Rico is devastated. But what they won't tell you is this. It's because of Wall Street and corporate America and Congress. Puerto Rico is an American territory, right? It became a territory in 1898. We plundered the sugar from them. We turned them into a tax haven for our corporations, never allowing them to develop and build up an economy of their own. We then took that tax haven status away, took the corporate benefits away, leaving them with fucking nothing. It's colonialism 101. Just this year, they became the largest bankruptcy case ever in the American bond market history. 46% of Puerto Rico is below the poverty line. 11% unemployment. And this is all proof that austerity never works. Cutting back on all the resources a society is supposed to provide does not help an economy bounce back. So in order to deal with the financial collapse in Puerto Rico, the U.S. did the same thing that we did in, uh, in, in Flint, Michigan. In Flint, Michigan, they replaced the actual elected officials with an emergency manager, an unelected official who then guts their society. Take away the democracy. That's why these cities and towns and colonies and territories are struggling. There's too much democracy. Now we know how that ended up in, uh, Flint, Michigan, right? Flint switched the, the water supply, poisoning the city. Just this week, we found out Flint's fertility rates decreased by 12% among Flint women, while fetal death rates rose by 58%, 58% higher because of this lead poisoning. The same held true in Puerto Rico. The U.S. Congress mandated an unelected fiscal oversight Board. Many Puerto Ricans refer to it as the junta that made all of the decisions for Puerto Rico's economy. Colonialism 101. But CNN won't mention any of that. They'll just talk about how tough Puerto Rico has it after this hurricane and how great the people are. With textbook hospitality. Oh, gracias. She takes the time to make us coffee. A few miles up the road, more kindness and much more misery. We don't show them the same kindness, right, that apparently they're showing us. Wall Street, via vulture funds, has gutted the Puerto Rican economy. They're literally called vulture funds. They circle poor countries and poor communities, and then they go down and rip the innards out. They gut every remaining dime out of the people. They force them to cut uh, medical care and education and, 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 and infrastructure, all the things you need if you're going to survive a natural disaster like a massive hurricane. Read Greg Palace's book called Vulture's Picnic. Now, he's not talking about Puerto Rico in that book. He's talking about mostly Africa, but the idea is the same. They buy up a country or territory's debts and then they rip it apart in order to collect the money that is now due to them. In one famous example, they took the money allotted for AIDS medication to the dying people in Africa. That was what they collected. As an American, I wonder how do Puerto Ricans feel about being American territory in times like this. Do you do you think America will come save you? Do you hope they will? See. Oh, I wouldn't look to us to help you. It's like looking to a fox to 
help the hen that has a broken leg go into the, the fox doctor to help, help the, the, the lame hen. America is the one that made sure their money went to American bondholders before doing things like building up their infrastructure and building up their society. We're the ones who made sure that their unemployment was this high. We helped create an economy where 46% are below the poverty line. Come on, Anderson, talk about the, the, the 1984 provision that says that, that uh, Puerto Rico cannot declare bankruptcy. Everywhere else in the U.S., you can declare uh, Chapter 9 bankruptcy when shit's really bad. This was passed in 1984, put in by Strom Thurmond, and no one can say why. And so this is why hedge funds, vulture funds, find Puerto Rico so attractive. They can't fucking declare bankruptcy. They can't do anything. They just have to sit there giving you money. And hedge funds love this shit. Hedge funds love chaos. It's good for them when shit goes bad for human beings. This is the catastrophic system that we've set up. So now that their society is, is destroyed by this hurricane, even more than it was by the economic hurricane, what is America gonna do to help out our neighbors, our friends, the territory of Puerto Rico? We're a thousand miles from Miami. The only way to get aid in here is by boat or by plane. We just can't get aid to them. It's funny how easy it is to get in there when we want to exploit them, when we want to take shit out, when we want to steal their sugar, pharmaceuticals. Until a decade ago, they made like all our pharmaceuticals, so much so that there was actually a town nicknamed the town of Viagra because all of our Viagra was made in that city in Puerto Rico because the corporate benefits that they were given were so high. But we can't get the aid, you know, just, I don't know. Now that Puerto Rico isn't providing us hard-ons, so what are you, what are you done for me lately? You used to give me bonus. Now, nothing. Large parts of the island, very difficult for reporters to get to, uh, and certainly relief efforts. Parts of the island are very difficult for reporters to get to, including parts of the island's history. Anything that happened more than a couple of weeks ago, the roads are all fucked. Can't access the, the, the part that shows that the U.S. Congress, Wall Street, fucking hedge funds and the bond market are what destroyed this beautiful country of three million people and then left them there to have a hurricane decimate what was left of their, their infrastructure. Fuck you, CNN. And fuck you for acting like you give a shit about these people. You've got all the access and the fucking money and the time and the ability to, and you show up and you go, let's not tell them the full story. Let's not actually give people information in order to change our society for the better. Let's just act like this and climate change, ecological destruction and imperialism. Let's act like the results of it just fell out of the sky yesterday. We had no idea where any of this came from. No idea as we see all the ramifications of the fucking disaster generation that we've created. This is your creation, you corporate media fucks. As always, I'd like to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, or more specifically, listeners exactly like Nick R., our newest Social Justice Warrior member, and Rob L., one of the newest professional protester members. So huge thanks to both Nick and Rob, but also to all of the members and donors who keep the show going. 
Now, these days, all new recurring donations of any size are processed by Patreon, where you can pledge as low as a buck a month using either PayPal or a standard issue credit card. Membership level donations are six bucks a month and include a separate members podcast feed, which includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content. Like our latest member show included a lost commentary of mine that it almost went into the show, but then it didn't. And and it may have been a controversial commentary. I, I end up questioning whether or not DACA recipients should be considered a threat to American citizens. But it's not even that potential controversy that made me decide to not put it on the show. So you're definitely going to want to check that out. So whether you can afford a buck a month or 20 when you sign up right now, you're helping us out and you will receive instant access to all of the members' benefits I just mentioned. So you can either find us, Best of the Left, on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com to get started. Speaking of consequences, the uh, federal relief efforts uh, to Puerto Rico well over a week after Hurricane Maria are, uh, well, they're going very, very well, at least according to Donald Trump. As far as Puerto Rico is concerned, we have had tremendous reviews. We're doing a great job. Everybody has said it's amazing the job that we've done in Puerto Rico. So uh, I think we've done a really good job. We are going to do Far more than anybody else would ever be able to do. Totally. (laughs) Doing a very good job. Very good job. No one More than anybody else has ever done before. That's right. Or ever will do. That's right. Well, in a, in a series of, uh, of, of tweets on uh, Thursday night and Friday morning, Trump continued to tout his administration's response to the devastation in Puerto Rico after two hurricanes tore through the island, Hurricane Maria and what was the other one? Was it that was Irma? Yes. Uh, And uh, and Trump continued to bash the media coverage of the federal government's recovery effort so far. Trump has claimed that the media has not been covering his administration's uh, efforts fairly. And he boasted that Puerto Rico's governor told him that he was pleased with the federal government's response so far. Of course, officials like the Puerto Rican governor aren't idiots. They have figured out that telling Trump what he wants to hear, that he's personally doing a great job on this or that, that that's the only way that they stand a chance, frankly, of improving efforts from the government uh, at this point at all to the ravaged island. We, we know we know more than enough now about Trump, I think, uh, to know that telling him he's great is pretty much the only thing that he wants to hear. And he can only, you know, I can only imagine how he would respond if leaders like the governor of Puerto Rico at this point, which is currently in desperate need, if they were critical of this man-child president. Nonetheless, uh, today, during remarks to a speech to a manufacturing trade group, Trump continued to blame Puerto Rico itself, to blame the island of three and a half million U.S. citizens for their own problems, citing uh, the island's distance from the U.S. mainland, among other reasons for the worsening humanitarian crisis. This is an island surrounded by water, big water, ocean water. We're closely coordinated with the territorial and local governments, which are totally and unfortunately unable to handle this 
catastrophic crisis on their own. Yeah, they can't do it on their own, you know, the way most places do. I remember when uh, Hurricane Harvey struck Houston. Houston totally handled it on their own. Florida totally handled uh, Hurricane Irma the week after that, totally on their own. Uh, and by the way, as far as the distance from uh, from the U.S., Puerto Rico is actually closer to the U.S. mainland than Washington, D.C. is to Mar-a-Lago. Just saying. And I think there's been quite a few flights from Washington, D.C. to Mar-a-Lago over, yeah. the, past, uh, over the past few months. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the administration has come under fire for the way that uh, federal officials have described the recovery efforts, given that the nearly the entire island, as I said, is without power. Still, residents there are struggling to get food. Half the island does not have potable water still. Yet Trump has consistently boasted about the uh, administration's efforts. And on Thursday, his acting Homeland Security uh, uh, director, Elaine Duke, incredibly enough, actually described the situation in Puerto Rico as a good news story. I am very satisfied. Um, I, I know it's a hard storm to recover from, but the amount of progress that's been made, and, and I really um, would appreciate any support uh, that we get. I know it, it, it is really a good news story. Totally, totally nothing but a good news story for the people of Puerto Rico. The mayor of uh, its capital city, San Juan, uh, the mayor, Carmen Yulín Cruz, appeared on CNN on Friday. She had not yet heard those remarks by DHS Secretary Elaine Duke. Uh, FEMA, by the way, is run by the Department of Homeland Security. So after the uh, after CNN played the comments for the mayor uh, of San Juan, uh, she seemed to be stunned. And uh, she frankly blasted those comments from the Department of Homeland Security uh, secretary. Well, maybe from where she's standing, it's a good news story. When you're drinking from a creek, it's not a good news story. When you don't have food for a baby, it's not a good news story. When you have to pull people down from their buildings, because, you know, know, I'm sorry, but that really upsets me and frustrates me. You know, get I would ask her to come down here and visit the towns and then make a statement like that, which frankly, it is an irresponsible statement. And it contrasts with uh, the statements of support that I have been getting since yesterday when I got that call from the White House. This is, damn it, this is not a good news story. This is a people are dying story. This is a life or death story. This is, there's a truckload of stuff that cannot be taken to people's story. This is a story of a devastation that continues to worsen because people are not getting food and water. If I could scream it a lot more louder, it is not a good news story when people are dying, when they don't have dialysis, when their generators aren't working and their oxygen isn't providing for them. Where is there good news here? I mean, the good news is that we're getting hurt. The good news is that there's boots on the ground. The good news is that the people from FEMA have their heart in the right place and the HHS people know what to do. For heaven's sake, somebody let them do their job. Let them get the food and the water in the hands of people. And then let's talk about good news. What and I'm you- really sorry. But you know, when you have 
when you have people out there dying, literally, scraping for food, where is, where is the good news? That was uh, San Juan uh, Secretary, uh, I'm sorry, San Juan Mayor uh, uh, Carmen Yulene Cruz on Friday. She sounds just exhausted. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's she's got they have a, such a long road ahead of them. And it, it is this is such a distraction for them to not be able to get what they need and having to fight and scream and yell just to get this minimum help. Yeah, that uh, that she and to clear uh, out the red tape for them. Uh, yeah, that she and the governor have to keep going on TV to, to to talk about this. There are apparently a lot of supplies sitting there in the ports, but there is no organization on the ground. Uh, to take these uh, s- supplies around uh, and to get them to distribute them where they need to be. Much of the island is still reportedly unreachable by aid workers due to the uh, damaged infrastructure and the lack of organization on the ground by federal officials to move that aid that has arrived. Uh, you know, and, and, and even to San Juan itself, a lot of those goods are sitting there in San Juan and not even getting to the people in San Juan. Just horrific stories are coming out of sh- you know, shortages of clean water, food, electricity. Um, even even though this uh, storm and and the consequences in Puerto Rico is getting apparently far less coverage by the mainstream corporate media itself uh, about this crisis in Puerto Rico uh, following Hurricane Maria than was seen after Hurricane Harvey in Texas and Hurricane Irma in Florida in the uh, in the preceding week. So the media itself is dropping the ball there. We have had callers. Uh, well, we had uh, a caller on uh, on the show, I think, on Thursday asking what they can do to help what it is that they, they need down there. Well, we have been pointing folks towards United for Puerto Rico dot com. That was set up by. Uh, Governor Rosario's uh, wife, uh, but there are many aid organizations out there, and uh, and this effort is going to take a very long time before things stop getting worse and finally start getting better. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell President Trump and Congress to provide hurricane relief and recovery assistance to Puerto Rico. Now, you remember the summer of 2016. I know that it feels like forever ago, but that summer, in the midst of election mania, Obama signed the controversial PROMESA law, which provided a way for Puerto Rico to restructure its debt, but also created a financial control board to oversee the island's financial affairs (laughs) and colonialism. A month later, on the 118th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Puerto Rico during the Spanish-American War and the 64th anniversary of the creation of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, both of which happened to coincide with the 2016 Democratic National Convention, a new group called the National Puerto Rican Agenda made their presence known with a rally outside City Hall in Philadelphia. 
The NPRA is an advocacy group empowering Puerto Rican communities across the mainland U.S. to be a voice on behalf of their Puerto Rican family and friends on the island who can't vote and don't have direct access to those in power. The group is made up of stateside Puerto Rican elected officials, community leaders, and activists, and was formed to address Puerto Rico's humanitarian and economic crisis. In the wake of Hurricane Maria's devastation, the NPRA is calling for major federal support and emergency assistance to the island that has been languishing for weeks in the aftermath. They have launched an action website to power a national letter drive campaign with a provided letter that outlines the details of their concerns and demands for the federal government's response. There are too many to read here, and the link is long, so please just access it in the show notes, and once you're there, you can make modifications to the letter and fill in your information to have it automatically sent to your members of Congress and, of course, to Trump. But you can and should go further by picking up the phone or getting on your Stance app and calling your members of Congress to demand that these obvious and critical asks be met. The bulleted list of demands in the letter template can certainly double as a call script. Once you've taken action, don't forget to share this campaign using the hashtag United for Puerto Rico or Unidos por Puerto Rico. And if you'd like to learn more about NPRA, go to PuertoRicanAgenda.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if helping other human beings in need because it's the right thing to do is important, important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling President Trump and Congress to provide hurricane relief and recovery assistance to Puerto Rico via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. On the phone, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the program Nelson A. Dennis. He is a former New York State Assemblyman. He is the author of War Against All Puerto Ricans, Revolution and Terror in America's Colony, and uh, writing in the New York Times um, uh, opinion piece just yesterday, I guess it was, The Law Strangling Puerto Rico. And Nelson, that law um, has, as of this morning, been waived at least temporarily by the Trump administration. Yeah, there's an irony to this. The, the, the law was promulgated in 1920. It's Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. It's otherwise known as the Joan Act. And it was originally to protect shipping lanes and the coastal areas and, and boats from German U-2 boats. Uh, that was the, the original legislative intent. And you fast forward 98 years. It took 98 years to revisit this, this law, which at this point, um, all it's really doing is strangling the Puerto Rican economy. It literally took a, a hurricane and very quick editorial pressure to, to bring attention to this law. So now my understanding is the law also uh, was a, um, a part of the function of the law was to protect the American uh, maritime industry 
Um, and with the uh, because there was concern that if we needed to ramp up to have this capacity to build uh, ships and whatnot, that um, we would want an American industry so that we wouldn't have to rely on others. The the industry has sort of withered uh, to a certain extent, but all of this, um, it, despite any and, and and certainly some unions, uh, I think uh, still um, uh, support this law because it because it provides jobs, but. No matter how you slice it, what's happening to Puerto Rico under this law, it, it's not it, it appears to me to not be necessary to have Puerto Rico in this. We have Virgin Islands are not subject to this law. Am I right? Yeah, there's three territories, uh, Virgin Island, uh, Guam, and um, I believe uh, I believe Samoa. Uh, are exempt from the from from the Jones Act. Let me take out very quickly. The way it applies to Puerto Rico is that e- Puerto Rico is an island. It, it has to import virtually everything, including oil, which runs its entire electrical grid. And Puerto Rico is in a blackout right now, so this is critical. It imports 85% of its of its food, um, clothing, automobiles, all of it under the auspices of the Jones Act. And the way that works is that. Any foreign registry vessel that attempts to go to Puerto Rico, it can only do it in one of two ways. If it goes directly to Puerto Rico, it is subject to fees, taxes, duties, uh, quota restrictions. All, all these costs are factored into the product, and the net result, it, it, it ends up costing about 20% more. Everything, no matter if it's uh, medicine from Canada, oil from Venezuela, uh, a car from Germany, anything. The other, the option is it can go to Jacksonville, Florida, specifically Jacksonville, where it gets offloaded off the original foreign registry vessel, reloaded onto an American boat, and then it reroutes to Puerto Rico. And that's the equivalent of, of digging a ditch to fill it up again. There's no reason other than that, other than, it, as you said, it creates jobs in Jacksonville, and again, it ramps up the price of the product. Then the final result of this is that it allows U.S. consumer goods companies to to ramp up their cost, their price in Puerto Rico. And Puerto Ricans are very price sensitive. Their capita income is about $17,000, which is less than half that of Mississippi, the poorest state in the union. So they're very price sensitive. So if, they, if Puerto Ricans can save a little bit on, on some product, they will. So U.S. corporations just slightly underbid the foreign goods with the price protection that's provided from the Jones Act. And it creates this tremendous captive market in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is the fifth largest market in the world goods. And there's more Walgreens and Walmarts per square mile in Puerto Rico than anywhere else on the planet. And all these goods are being sold at hyperinflated prices due to the Jones Act. I I, want to reiterate that I was just blown away by that. The fifth largest market in the world for American products? Yeah. I mean, yeah, and, that, and it's relative, it's not a huge population. It's three and a half million people, right. and they're poor, and it's the fifth largest market. And I mean, you know, when you look at those numbers, and and this is, you know, I mean, I think this is the uh, the larger story that you tell in your book, and people can go back and listen to our interview when we talked about your book specifically. But um, when you hear those numbers, it really has the feeling of. You you get the sense of colonialism that's involved in this, and instead of like extracting, and we still we still very well may uh, resources from Puerto Rico, we're we're extracting, uh, or I should say, you know, um, we're 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 extracting sort of like final end resources, not even natural resources. We're we're extracting just we're it's just a full extraction of wealth out of that country, uh, that that the island, I should say. It's it's the United States territory, I guess. 
last. Yeah, and you know what? You actually covered. Uh, there's a, there's a real insight in, in there, uh, Sam. That there's been an evolution. It's been a one-sided relationship, and there's been a red carpet stretching from San Juan to Wall Street for over a hundred years. From the beginning, it was perceived Puerto Rico as the, the advantage of it was to be a naval coaling station. It had geopolitical value back in the turn of the century, in 1898. Um, they quickly saw, though, that there was an agricultural benefit in, in Puerto Rico. And uh, one uh, an, an interesting context is here: so an even larger hurricane in, uh, occurred in 99 called Huracan San Siriaco. San Siriaco really leveled the island, and the American response in the the following year was to devalue the currency of Puerto Rico by 40%. So it was a sort of a Naomi Klein shocked doctrine response. And the, um, that evolution has continued. It went from a naval coaling station to an agricultural economy, a one crop cash cow economy, that of sugar. And they were able to, the United States able, was able to dominate, own 80% of the, of the arable land in Puerto Rico. That price devaluation, the monetary devaluation helped them do it. Then from an agricultural economy, it became a corporate tax haven, uh, whereby, whereby corporations get a 20-year tax abatement on all interest and capital gains income. And then most recently, it's become a municipal bond target and a, and a consumer goods market. Um, and so it's gone through all these evolutionary relations with the United States, but all of them one-sided, where it always benefits the United States. Um, and we should remind people that even with all this said in Puerto Rico, you can't vote for the president. How does that, I didn't realize that, uh, you can, you can vote in primaries, but how do you vote? I don't understand. I mean, if I move to, if I'm, uh, living in Puerto Rico, uh, and I move to Florida, I can vote in Florida. Is that right? Yeah, well, that um, derives from the relationship from the from the beginning, from 1898, from the Spanish-American War onward. Puerto Rico has been an unoccupied territory. It has been a territorial possession, and and those are key words. They're they're so key that they were upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court last year in the U.S. United States versus Sanchez Valle decision. That and another. There were two Supreme Court cases, both of which upheld last year that Puerto Rico was a not not a commonwealth or any they, they stripped down to the language that under the meaning of the territorial and the supremacy clauses of the US Constitution, Puerto Rico is a possession and and that's synonymous with a colony. And as a possession, the US Congress has plenary jurisdiction over any law in Puerto Rico. They can veto anything that, that Puerto Rican legislature comes up with, including most recently, and this was the, the controversy last year that rose to the Supreme Court, the attempt to, to give Puerto Rico chapter nine bankruptcy powers. It doesn't, doesn't have it. Puerto Rico can't create its own legislation. And if it does, and if it conflicts with US legislation, it'll, it'll always be struck down. So it's sort of a kind of, it's a very qualified uh, citizenship whereby we don't get the real privileges and immunities of the U.S. Constitution. And yet you're, we're subject to U.S. law, we can get drafted, and we're subject to things like the Jones Act, which are almost, it's, it's surrealistic. Um, U.S. taxpayer doesn't realize, they think that Puerto Ricans are getting tax preferences, that they don't pay full income taxes, and that they're basically getting over. And it's not the case. It's the exact opposite. The United the Puerto Rico has been sustaining the U.S. economy since the inception. And one of the principal ways, Sam, is this Jones Act. It's costing Puerto Rico between it's estimated between three and six billion dollars a year. That Jones Act alone, if it weren't for that one law, 
we would have paid the public debt of $73 billion. We would have paid it three or four times over. That gives you an idea of the power of the U.S. Congress over Puerto Rico. Just go out, walk, walk, walk through that. I mean, explain it. I mean, because you've got uh, just everything is so expensive that um, the it 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 sort of traps the economy in some way, right? I mean, and this is why you've had such a, a large exodus of people from Puerto Rico over the past, I guess, decade. I mean, just explain where uh, so. You have to, as a consumer, you're paying 13 percent uh, more in terms of your cost of living. Something like I saw some uh, thing that said, you know, food itself costs almost twice what it costs in Florida. Um, wh- yeah. wh- so what? So this is just basic. And then this money is extracted by uh, by U.S. corporations, I guess. And none of it stays in Puerto Rico. So the economy the the economy there is just drained of money that could go towards infrastructure payments and whatnot. Yeah, and so what and what happens unfortunately, Puerto Rico and um, uh, President Trump sort of touched on this. He mentioned the fact that Puerto Rico is fifteen hundred miles away and you can't just drive trucks over there. And he's right, but that that fifteen hundred miles has also created fifteen hundred miles of misunderstanding. And in all fa- in all fairness to the American, the rest of the American public. There's no reason why they should know, uh, understand the, the minutiae of the Jones Act. It doesn't. It's, it's not part of their the fabric of their, their daily life, and so that's a big problem. That what you you hear what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Puerto Rico never happens at all. The only reason we have some uh, some meaningful attention to the Jones Act is because of the hurricane, and yet this law has been on the books for the nine, last 98 years. And you're right; it absolutely drains the Puerto Rican economy, and it prevents. Puerto Rico from having a private sector. It's spe- per, the, the island is specifically prohibited from developing its own shipping industry, which is a fundamental aspect of an island. Right. <laughs> you mean you have to import and export. Well, Puerto Rico can't set its own international pricing structure. It's completely subject to the whatever price rigging is created by the U.S. corporations. And in the end, it becomes a class thing. It's not really, it's not as if it's Puerto Rico versus the United States or the people in Puerto Rico. It's a class situation because there are a very small uh, segment of rich people in Wall Street, in San Juan, Puerto Ricans included, that are, that are creating these financial instruments, these municipal bond products, and that are benefiting from the Jones Act at the expense of not only Puerto Ricans, but the U.S. taxpayer. Because they're the ones that are that are paying taxes that are, they'll go go in as transfer payments into Puerto Rico, but the Puerto Ricans don't benefit because their per capita income is only seventeen thousand, and whatever money they're getting or any tax purposes is going from one pocket out the other to the corporations. Right. When the same car costs six thousand dollars more in San Juan than it does in Miami, Sam, someone is getting over, and it's not the Puerto Ricans.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, introducing the idea that disaster is profitable. The Green News report ran through just a few of the key points about the devastation being underestimated and the unbearable slowness of the response. Counterspin dove a bit deeper into the long-standing issues that had been devastating Puerto Rico long before these hurricanes arrived. Sam Cedar on Ring of Fire Radio talked with Digby about Trump's seeming disinterest in helping Puerto Rico. Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight told the story of how Wall Street, corporate America, and Congress all worked together to put Puerto Rico in its current situation. The broadcast focused on separating some of the delusions about the recovery effort from the realities. Our activism for today is in support of the National Puerto Rican Agenda Call for Relief and Recovery Assistance to Puerto Rico. And finally, we just heard the Majority Report talking with Nelson Dennis about the exploitation and colonization of Puerto Rico by the U.S. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And although we don't have time for voicemails today, if you would like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I just have one hopefully quick story for you today. Obviously, this episode got me thinking about colonialism. And so just in terms of U.S. Puerto Rico, what this got me thinking is like to expect Puerto Rico to simply pay their debts and build their infrastructure. You know, it's like breaking someone's legs and then criticizing them for not being able to run as fast as they used to. And, you know, hey, but wait a second, you might say, there are people with no legs who climb mountains and are Olympians. So having no legs isn't the deciding factor here. You can overcome adversity like that. And I would agree but this is the importance of understanding the social versus individual divide. If you break a hundred people's legs, I have no doubt that some number of them will respond by overcoming that adversity brilliantly and becoming amazing wheelchair athletes. But that can't be used as an excuse to criticize all those who don't end up as better athletes than before the loss of their legs. So America went in and treated Puerto Rico in the same way that, you know, colonialist powers always treat their colonies as a resource to be extracted from, but not to be taken care of with the same level of concern as they take care of themselves. And to illustrate that this is not a new concept, I, I thought of this little tidbit of history that I read recently that illustrates this point. So I was reading some Scottish English history. And there's this one story that really stuck out to me. And now, before I start, think about all of the countries that come to mind when you think of the age of exploration, back when all those European nations were scrambling to lay claim to territories all over the world to extract wealth. And I'm guessing that Scotland didn't come to mind. And there's a reason for that. So here's the story. Scotland was terrible at exploration. There was this one quintessential expedition that they sent out to South America. First of all, they they raised some money and they sent out this expedition trying to colonize and exploit South America, but they completely underestimated the kind of resistance that they would get from the locals. And, you know, the Spanish turns out they were already there. And so they just had their asses completely handed to them 
and the, the, the expedition was an unmitigated failure. And so after that, obviously, <laughs> there's no surprise that it was difficult to find financial backers for any more expeditions. So while their neighbors, the English, built an empire around the world, the Scots sat home. At least that's one way you could tell that story. Unsurprisingly, there's a little bit more to it. So as you may know, Scotland has had a very contentious relationship with England for a very long time, and uh, much of the time that England has had control over Scotland, they treated Scotland much like the U.S. treats Puerto Rico. Sort of part of the country, but not really. So back in the day, England, they were going around building their uh, worldwide empire. But even though Scotland was basically the same country, sort of, they were all ruled by the same king. England wouldn't let Scotland use any of their trade routes that they had established with the territories and colonies all around the world. So Scotland uh, was still thought of as this second-class citizen, more of a competitor than an ally. So England took these steps to systematically disadvantage them whenever possible. So when Scotland decided to fund their expedition to South America, it was really more like a last resort. Uh, you know, they, they should have been allowed to use those other trade routes all along, but the English wouldn't let them, and so the Scots were forced to try something sort of desperate. And as I said, they faced resistance in South America uh, by the locals and the Spanish, but uh, the Scots were in luck because, hey, it turns out the English were also nearby in South America and could lend them a hand. You know, they're all ruled by the same king after all. So a request was sent from the Scottish explorers back to the English king asking, hey, could you tell these other Englishmen, give us a hand? And the word came back, no. The English were not to help the Scots. And the Scottish expedition, as I said, was an utter horrific disaster. So Who's at fault for Scotland not becoming a great colonial power like their neighbors, the English? Was it purely their own fault for not overcoming every impediment put in their way, no matter how onerous? Or does at least some of the blame lie with these powerful forces that did everything they could to make sure that the Scots knew their place and couldn't improve their economic circumstances enough to, oh, I don't know, challenge English rule? Nah, probably not. I, I assume the Scots were probably just lazy and waiting for someone else to do things for them, and they basically got what they deserved. Now, as I mentioned before, if you'd like to leave a comment on this or anything else, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks again to all of those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon.com. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Life podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Best of the Left. Dot com. Uh-huh.
it's a cry in shame How we get so trained We can see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our sad stories And wonder what we're doing We can see past 